Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. And today I've got a special guest, the one and only Kula Callahan. Kula, how you doing? I'm so great, David. I'm excited to dive into this podcast episode. It's a little bit different, but I think everybody's going to love it. Kula, with this being the last episode of 2022, I thought you and I could have some fun sort of listening to and then reflecting on some of the best insights from our podcast this year. And I got to tell you, picking clips was as difficult for me as trying to pick my favorite day of the week to play golf. I mean, I have to tell you, (laughs) this is hard for me because, you know, when I think of them, my podcast, they're they're like all my children. They're like all my babies. This is like, I loved every one of them. They all had great insights. So this was really, really hard for me. And uh, But we had to do it. So here we are. Let's dig in. Are, are you ready to go, Kula? I'm ready. Everybody loves a highlight reel. So we're about to hit them with that highlight reel. of The best of the best of 2022. This is like the Sports Center top 10 plays. But I don't know how many plays we have. We'll, we'll count them up later. <laughs> well, let's kick this off with my conversation with Stanley Druckenmiller the number one investor in the world, and our most downloaded episode of the year. Now, in this clip, Stan talks about the importance of loving what you do. And I have to tell you, that is absolutely essential if you're going to really maximize your success. If you love what you do, first of all, your work ethic is going to be fantastic because you're going to work hard. If you say, oh, he's a hard worker, man, I really admire him. Well, not really. He's just enjoying himself. And if you work harder than other people in your industry, I'm in a very competitive one. Every time you buy something, there's a seller on the other side. So you better have done your homework, particularly if he's passionate. So I think a lot of his work ethic, but I also think you're just going to be better at something if you enjoy it than if you don't enjoy it. I've seen your golf game. You love golf. You're now the oldest club champion in the history of uh, Shinnecock (laughs) Hills. And I think I'd say 98% of that is your passion for the game. Well, I I think passion has a lot to do with it. You know, I was like a 2.0 student in college, but then when I got into marketing and found what I really loved, everything changed. And I think that's really the point that you're making. You mentioned it. We both play golf, and there's nothing like hitting a shot that's close to the hole. You hit that sweet spot. What gives you that same sensation in the world of investing? You know, what's the thing that really keeps you addicted to what you do? If you envision the future and you're wrong, it's not very fun. It's like shanking a wedge that really matters (laughs) (laughs) on a keyhole. But if you envision the future, particularly in a way that others have not, and you bet it big and it all comes to fruition, it's not so much that you make a lot of money. It's that you figure out a problem and you won and there's the self-satisfaction of it. So... Constantly looking at the world as a collection of puzzles and trying to figure out those puzzles. When you get them right, it's wonderful. When you get them wrong, it's not so wonderful, but you move on. I also remember my mentor, Spiros Drellis in Pittsburgh, saying you get your grades in the paper every day. There's no hiding in the investment business. (laughs) The numbers are what they are. You can make up all the excuses you want. At least in golf, you can say it took a bad bounce or did this or that. (laughs) When you screw up in my business... 
There's no hiding. And the converse of that is when you do something right, you have the self-satisfaction knowing you figured it out. And I'll also say that while I had clients, there was nothing better than making people money. Other than their spouse and their children, you're, you're a really important part of their life. It's also miserable when you'd have drawdowns. But to start with a lot of small businessmen like I did and doctors and be able to contribute to their lifestyle later on, that was extremely satisfying. Well, I don't think anybody's had a better return on investment than Stanley Druckenmiller. And if you want to get a return on listening, you can go back and listen to my entire conversation with Stan on episode 101. You know, as an investor, Stan is trying to predict the future. And well, he's right a lot of the time. During his 30 years of managing money for investors, he had an average annual return of 31%. And he never had a down year. I mean, that's a pretty insane track record as an investor. And, you know, being able to predict the future and envision what the future is like is important for leaders really in any industry. You've got to be able to envision what the future of your business could and should look like. And Shantanu Narayan, the CEO of Adobe, talks about this in your conversation with him. He says that you have to see the future and look for ways to disrupt yourself as a business. I was incredibly fortunate. The two co-founders of Adobe, uh, John Warnock and Chuck Yeshke, um, you know, first, they were researchers at Xerox Park, David. They went to uh, the management at Xerox Park at that point and said, hey, we have this idea for, you know, the technology that, uh, you know, became Postscript. And when there was no receptivity to that idea, they decided to go off and start a company. And so they always believed that you know, you have to constantly disrupt yourself. And, you know, we were in the uh, business of just selling Postscript to OEM vendors. Then we created the applications business. Then we created the documents business with PDF. And, you know, I've tried to continue that with the management team. When we moved to subscription, that was a complete disruption. We again dropped revenue, you know, 25%. uh, When we talked about the importance of data. So I think the way we try to, align the company around disruption is to have these assertions or hypotheses of how the world is going to change. And if you put them up on your wall and you say the world is going to change, then our job as leaders is, are we taking advantage of that? Are we in denial of that? Or are we going to allow somebody else to eat our lunch? But the key lesson for me is, let's be clear on those hypotheses or assertions. And if you can't express them succinctly, Uh, then they're probably not relevant enough. That full episode with Shantanu is episode number 72. Cool, you're so right about Shantanu. He is a tremendous visionary leader. And Will Ahmed, who's the CEO of Whoop, is exactly the same kind of leader. And he is competing in the wearable fitness tracker business that helps elite athletes like you, Kula, and everyday (laughs) consumers like me and he helps them achieve peak performance. Now, the key for Will is how he's leveraged the power of his team to thrive in a really competitive space, this wearables category, which is getting more and more competitive every single day. So let's listen in. Well, it's funny. We define the whole business through growth and retention, which we've uh, nicknamed Growtain for grow and retain. And so you'll see people at Whoop walking around with Growtain shirts on from time to time. You know, those are the two levers on our business. And I would say that I probably 
personally spend more time thinking about retention. I would say the rest of the management team probably spends a lot of time thinking about growth. But you can't have one without the other. And for us, ensuring that people are really enjoying the product for months and years and hopefully for the rest of their lives is core to our value proposition. I mean, we don't think of improving health as a one-time thing. Uh, It's something that's going to evolve at different stages in your life. I mean, just picture a woman who goes from being someone who's training for a marathon to all of a sudden someone who's pregnant to all of a sudden who's got a newborn. I mean, those are three very different stages of life for the same person. And and each one of those stages has, has a very different goal attached to it. And so as a product and a technology and, and a service, we want to make sure that we're evolving with those different needs. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about your job and you, you've got to be an expert or at least damn good at technology, damn good at medicine, damn good at research. How do you manage the intersection of those three things? Does one take more time than the other? And how do you lead in each of those areas? Well, first and foremost, it's about being around great people. I've built this business in large part by getting to work with really brilliant people. And people, by the way, who are much more brilliant at their category of work than I am. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. In order to be successful at wearable technology, you have to be great, not good, at hardware, software, analytics, design. You probably need some notion of community. You have to be able to lean on research and science. And there's a reason that Many of the best companies in the world have failed in this space. You know, it's been a really, really hard market. And so the only way you can be successful is being excellent at like six or seven different things. And in order to be excellent at six or seven things, as you know, David, you need to have really, really good people. There's not one generalist who's all those things. And I'm certainly not that one generalist. I've gotten to a place where I, I can identify, I think, great talent and I can empower that talent to take on the world. I love that concept from Will. And if you want to hear the entire conversation, go back and listen to episode number 64. And next up, we have my good friend, Jeff Yang, who's one of the greatest entrepreneurs in the world. So Kula, take it away. Well, speaking of bringing great talent to a team, I think you're really going to enjoy this next clip. Like you said, it's with Jeff Yang, who's the founding partner and managing director of Redpoint Ventures. He's a legendary venture capitalist who's backed companies like Stripe and Netflix and Sonos and DraftKings, just to name a few. I mean, he has an amazing repertoire of companies that he's been a part of. And after working with so many businesses like this, He knows what it takes to build a winning team, and he knows what to look for as you are developing that team. I love how he talked about talent management and how he breaks down his approach to it. He calls it the ABC approach. So listen in to hear from Jeff. It's very rare that people hire up. People hire the same or hire down, right? And so the reason I really want A's in every position. That's the first part of ABC. That's the first part of ABC. And when you're getting started, I always say, listen, don't just get someone that fills the job because you need someone to fill the job. Just make sure the person's an A. It doesn't matter where in the company, but make sure the person's an A. Because if you get a group of A's together, other A's will want to come. Because A's hire A's, B's hire B's and C's. And once you get C's in a company, they're like cockroaches. You can't get them out. And when you get a reputation of being C's, you can't hire A's. Like 
B's can't hire A's, C's for sure can't hire A's. And so I always say in the beginning, you're kind of setting the culture and you're setting the philosophy, and but you're also setting the threshold. It's a little bit like building a club. If you're going to build a club, you want to start with absolutely the, the bell cows that everybody wants to follow. And then once you do that, then all of a sudden the best people will want to come in. But if you start with B's and C's, you'll never be able to level up. And the C's really are like cockroaches and destroy a company. ABC, get rid of those cockroaches, you know. And if you want to <laughs> listen to the rest of this conversation with Jeff, go to episode 103. I'll tell you something, Kula. If there's a quality I think that makes for a great leader, it's those who look to serve. And this clip is for my conversation with Guy Raz, the host and creator of the two wildly popular podcasts, How I Built This and Wisdom from the Top, which I had the great honor of being on as his guest. And I learned so much about podcasting just by talking to Guy. He really knows his business. And I think you're going to really like listening to this podcast I had with him and this insight. You know, as humans, we're kind of wired to be selfish, right? Because that's how we survive. We need to eat and we need to secure ourselves and be safe. And I think as we've evolved as humans, we've tried to fight against some of our selfish instincts that are encoded in who we are. And one of the things that really helps me is to think about, and it actually is a, a really important kind of psychological trick that I use that helps me feel confident about trying to sell what I do. Because, you know, it's a sales job. I want people to listen to how I built this. I want them to listen to wisdom from the top. But really, what helps me, quote unquote, sell those shows is to think about what I do in service of others. Now, of course, it's how I make a living. I earn money from that. And so it's not a selfless, you know, uh, entirely selfless operation. But at its core, at its heart, what I'm doing is trying to serve the people who don't have access to the founders I have access to. You know, I can call pretty much any founder and get them on How I Built This. We're really privileged and lucky because we have a big platform and audience. But I take that responsibility very seriously because I think about somebody who's got a small brick and mortar store, who's trying to figure out how to create a second location, or somebody who's running a shop on Etsy and thinking about how to scale or expand. And I think about what I do as a free business school course for them, you know, a service that is free that will hopefully give them information that is useful. And so to me, I really do think about what I do in service of others. And it actually, that's what drives me. I get jazzed about that. You know, I love that. You can go back and listen to my entire conversation with Guy on episode 94. All right, David, this next clip is from an absolute powerhouse female leader. It's from Jenny Rometty, the former chairman and CEO of IBM. This freaking podcast episode feels like my battle cry. She is so insightful and so smart. And you're going to love how Jenny takes on what's uncomfortable. She really champions people to walk into discomfort and get used to it because that's really the only way that you'll grow. Check out this clip from her. How did you learn to adapt so successfully taking on new and different roles? I'm not sure I always did from the beginning. Okay. So for, uh, maybe you did, maybe you were like infinitely, you know, confident in every role. I don't know. I don't think so, but I might've acted that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So this is a very big sort of, I'm going to stereotype. I think it's a very big difference between men and women, by the way, in the general, 
So um, if I can, one of the fast stories of, of mine was one of when I made one of my biggest career changes. So I'd had a very, I would call what IBM would have been a traditional career of you move in. I came in as an engineer, moved through that, went into sales, into marketing. I was on my way. Back then, the job would have been a branch manager, wonderful things. And someone came to me and said, you know what? We're going to start a consulting business and we're going to hire all these people from the outside. And we think that you would be uh, really good at this. It was one of the very first times. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to divert off of this path. And um, I hemmed and hawed. And, you know, it was my husband. He'd say, well, Jenny, consulting, you know, it's all this engineering problem solving. These all sound like things you're good at. Why are you so worried about this? And the more I thought about it, first lesson was, you know what? Consulting is a really valued external career, valued by the external world. I was getting really good at IBM stuff, but like, well, what's that worth in the external world? So my first lesson on being willing to change was that. The second was time would go on and that turned out great, successful, et cetera. Went on to other jobs. And I remember being offered a very large job. And the man who I worked for, he came to me, he said, Jenny, I'm going to get a new job. And I think you should take my job. And I looked at him and I said, boy, now this is a very big global management job. I said, I'm not ready for this job. Maybe two more years, I could be ready for it. He said, go to the interview because I had it with his boss. So I went to the interview the next day. He's telling me why I should do it, this and that. And he offers me the job. And I said, let me go home and talk to my husband about it. Kind of looked at me. Okay. I went home. I talked to my husband's name is Mark. You know, Mark did. Yeah. I talked to Mark and Mark looked at me, you know, he kind of, I went on and on like usual. He's like sitting there and he goes, Jenny, do you think a man would have answered that offer that way? And I said, no. He said, I know you, you're going to do it. You're going to, you know, six months, you're going to have said, I've learned everything. I'm bored. I got to move on. This is it. And I know these other people, you're better than all of them. And it was, that was when, to me, it crystallized that story. Some have heard that I say growth and comfort never coexist, never. And it really was in that moment that I really realized my mistake. And I, and I went in the next day, I took the job. He looked at me and he said, don't do that again. I said, I understand. And the point was, you got to have confidence. And even if you're not, by the way, because very natural, don't show it then, okay? Because you will only grow when you're uncomfortable. And I've talked to so many people around the world that resonate with that. And I try to say to them, I actually got to the point where I love to feel uncomfortable because then I'm like, yes, I'm learning. I'm learning. And so I would even look to put myself as a CEO, particularly in those positions, right? You know, I'd be seeing a client that ran a railroad. I got to learn railroad business before I get there, you know? And (laughs) it was like, if you start feeling like you're not, I would say to people, if you're feeling so comfortable in a role, you do need to change it because you are not learning. So growth and comfort never coexist. And what's really interesting about this, Kula, is that Jenny was very uncomfortable taking on those new responsibilities. And that's something that we all have to do. We have to work through those anxieties and step up to that next role. It's in us all. You know, we all have those little concerns, but we got to take the chance. We got to get out there, take that leap. And if you want to learn more from Jenny, who is absolutely a great leader, go to episode 66. And cool, I don't know about you. I just love the Olympics. And and right around the Olympics, I had the privilege of spending time with Scott Hamilton, who won the gold medal in figure skating back in 1984. Scott has a perspective on failure and coming up against challenges in your life that I think everyone needs to hear. 
I go back to a story of my son when he started playing hockey. You know, he got killed in a house league game and he came off the ice and he was really upset. And he, he just like, he was so angry. And I go, okay, let's break it down. What, what happened today? And he goes, well, they skate faster than me. And I go, and that means you got to what? Work harder on my skating. Oh, good. And what else? They took the puck away from me every time I had it. And I go, well, that's kind of the nature of the game. But what did you learn from that? And he goes, I got to work on my stick handling. I go, great. What else? And he goes, um, I, I just don't like losing. And I go, okay. Well, let's just say today you won. What would you have learned? And he looked at me and he just goes, nothing. I go, precisely. So we learn from failure. And failure isn't scarring or disfiguring or anything else. I think we put such a, an identity on failure that we avoid it. We think it's, it's going to be something that we have to carry with us for the rest of our life. And I try to encourage people that failure is 100% information, only information. If we can break it down to information instead of this horrible, toxic, scarring, disfiguring entity that we have to carry around with us for the rest of our life, I think we can move forward towards excellence or towards the best version of ourselves that we can be. And, and so I'm, I'm a big fan of failure. I've fallen on the ice minimum 41,600 times, but it's, <laughs> it's getting up 41,600 times that allows you to understand the process of learning, the process of growing, and the process of getting to where you want to be. Gosh, that episode with Scott is so moving. And I really encourage you to listen to the entire thing. It's episode 69. So go back and check it out. That line from Scott, looking at failure as 100% information is so good. And you know what, Kula? We all have to overcome challenges. And that's why I like this next leader that you're going to talk about. Take it away. This next clip is from your conversation with Maritza Montiel, the former deputy CEO and vice chairman of Deloitte. And she has blazed a trail as really one of the most accomplished and admired women in corporate leadership. And after listening to your conversation, I can tell you why. It's because she had the courage to dream and she made her dreams a reality. You're going to be so inspired by this clip from Maritza. If you don't believe in yourself, it's kind of hard to have others that you expect that others would believe in you. I just had a, a sense of, I feel sorry for whomever challenges me that I can't do something because it's, it's the fuel that gives me the motivation to try to prove you wrong. And so I thrive in chaos. I thrive in adversity. I'm not scared of anything. I have failed many times and I've learned from that, but I believe that there are no such things as huge problems. They're just Lots of little problems that put together are big. And so if you view a challenge as an opportunity and you don't view the gigantic thing as a problem, but you view it as everything is solvable and you surround yourself with the right team to face off against that challenge, that you can be successful. So courage comes in many different ways. Some people are afraid in the moment, but then run to it and seize it and are successful. Other people sort of raise their hand and they say, let me have the ball, coach. I'll go take care of this. But everyone has courage. It's just that sometimes I think fear of failure paralyzes people. And so I always say to people, believe in yourself. Make sure you have a plan of what it is you want to accomplish. And, you know, dare to dream. One of the things I always, when I had my one-on-one -on -one sessions with my leaders, I would always end the sessions with, Tell me what your dream is. And it sort of caught people off guard at the beginning. But the next time we met, 
they came prepared to talk about that dream. It didn't have to be. They would ask me, well, about what? And I would say, well, they're not my dreams. They're your dreams. That's what I want to know. And so it forces people to think about the art of the possible. And it forces you to think about, you know, if you spend two weeks planning your vacation, but you don't spend more than a day thinking about your future, it's kind of not the right balance in life. And I had lots of dreams. And so it's amazing how if you dream, a lot of times they do come true and it gives you the energy and the confidence to want to do more. You know what I love about Maritza, and I've had the great privilege of serving on the Comcast board with her, is that she has taken the time to really codify how women can be more successful in the workplace by writing a terrific book called Dare to Be Extraordinary that she disseminated across the entire Deloitte organization. She is passionate about leadership development, and I love that. You can hear the entire conversation with Maritza on episode 105. You're right, David. That conversation with Maritza is a fantastic episode, and I am ready to kick off this next clip over to you. Oh, cool. You are really on your game today. Kick off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me tell you something. This next guest had a big dream of his own, and it was to one day be the commissioner, not of the National Hockey League. There's no kickoffs there. I'm talking about the National Football League. And can you believe it? His dream actually happened. I'm talking about Roger Goodell, who's been the commissioner since 2006 of the National Football League. And while the NFL has been wildly successful, to say the least, Roger fights complacency and is always looking for new, innovative ways to grow the business. One of the big challenges I had when I became commissioner is the league was so successful that when you start talking about, well, we should do this and we should do that, we should focus on this, a lot of people reacted as saying, why? We're already successful. And my answer to that is because we can get better. And it's sometimes harder to drive change in a successful organization for that reason, that people are somewhat resistant to change. And why take the risk? We're already at a great level. My view is the NFL has got so much more potential and we can grasp that and we can achieve that if we continue to be smart about the decisions we make, we continue to act like we're number two and continue to find new ways of doing things. So this year coming into the season, a big change for us, we have our first new game media partner in Amazon Prime on Thursday Night Football. First time we've moved to a streaming platform exclusively. And I think it's going to change the way football is watched over the years because of the technology. But I also think it's exciting to have a new partner that is cited to be on Thursday Night Football and and going to promote it to a level that's never happened before. So that kind of thing really excites me. I understand that you take regular trips to Silicon Valley to meet with tech companies. And what's the motivation behind that? And what do you hope to come back with after those trips? A new perspective an understanding of what's happening in technology and with companies. We don't just go see companies that we'll likely do business with. We actually see companies that we admire that are finding new solutions out there using their technology, their products, and try to see how we can apply that to ourselves and how we can make the NFL better. If a partnership somehow evolves from that, that's fine, but that's not the objective. And in most cases, that doesn't happen. The reality is what we do is we understand other industries better, other companies better, and how we make the NFL better. 
You know, speaking of Silicon Valley, I heard you met with Steve Jobs at Apple headquarters. And in one of your meetings, he gave you the seed of an idea that you executed to improve the fan experience in every stadium. Tell us about it. First off, Steve Jobs is an icon. So it was fun for me to get his perspective on the NFL. He was very engaged. You know, he said, you know, one thing I would really think about is, and I know this is going to sound at this stage rather old, but he said, you really got to figure out how to get Wi-Fi in your stadiums so that you can improve the experience for fans in the stadium. And we set out to do that. Now, obviously, we've been able to do that. We have Verizon who's got wonderful 5G. So we've long bypass that time. But what it told me was the importance of technology and improving the experience for our fans, whether it's on television or on media platforms, or whether it's in our stadium, and the importance of doing both. Our experience in the stadium is really important through media. And we saw that in 2020 when we had empty stadiums. It's a tougher experience for people to watch something where nobody's watching it. It's not a studio game. The fans are a big part of the game. Well, Roger Goodell is episode 99 if you want to hear the entire conversation. And I'm excited to be able to introduce this next clip because, well, I'll give you a hint first. The return to glory. Okay, if you didn't know what that was. It's what Jim Nance said on Sunday of the 2019 Masters when Tiger Woods made arguably the greatest comeback of sports history. In fact, I have the Sports Illustrated cover of him raising his putter in the air framed in my office. The next guest is no stranger to the Masters, and he's no stranger to the NFL. It's Jim Nance, the legendary sports broadcaster. You know, one thing that really impressed me about Jim is that he always shows up prepared, and it's how he does his best work whenever he's on live television. And of course, I love his stories about the Masters, because like you, I'm a huge golfer. But in particular, the story about how he made one of the most famous calls in his career was in the 1997 Masters when Tiger Woods won. Take a listen. You know, you mentioned Tiger Woods a little earlier, and you talked about your 2019 call, you know, return to glory. You know, you had a great call when he won the Masters in 1997. Do you remember what you said? There it is. A win for the ages. <laughs> I'll never forget. I get reminded about five times a week by people that ask me to write that on a piece of paper. Yeah, I got to ask you now. Now, are you writing these lines in advance? Fair question. How do you come up with this stuff? That one was uh, preset, as it should have been. The return to glory came to me just seconds before he holed out to complete, I think, the greatest comeback that the sport's ever seen. But in 1997... He had a nine-shot lead, David, going into Sunday. So he had some time to think about it. I felt like I would not be doing my job unless I was prepared for that moment. Now, most of these calls that you get at the end of a championship or at the end of a golf tournament, they're best when they're organic, then they just come to you. But sometimes, on those rare occasions, you get something in your lap like Tiger about to break the 72-hole scoring record, the largest margin of victory, the youngest to ever win the Masters. Here he is with a victory that's got massive social significance that go way beyond the parameters of the sport. So on Saturday night, I felt pressure, not about the show, but about how I was gonna frame that moment. Best thing you can do is say something succinct and get out of the way and let the moment breathe. 
like we did for Return to Glory. After we said that, it was about two and a half minutes before there was another word spoken on the air. The scene took care of itself. But you got a nine-shot lead. I, I put it like this. If you were a writer, and there were hundreds of writers that came in from around the world, journalists, I would like to think on Saturday night, April the 12th, 1997, on the eve of Tiger's victory, that they didn't just go out and have a great dinner, hit the bar and have a high time of it. I would like to think somebody's paid their expenses to fly all the way to Augusta, put them up for a week. I would think they would be working on their lead. In the written world, the lead in some respects is everything. I would like to think that all their minds were thinking about the lead. How are we going to open up this story? For me, I was worried about the back end of the story. That narrative over that putt, David, is going to be played till the end of time. So I thought, what are you going to say? He's going to win. Do you say, there's your champion. Tiger Woods takes the Masters. It has got to be something that in that compact, succinct sentence, it has to be tied to frame it the way it was. And ultimately, I hit on a win for the ages. And I thought, that's what it goes when they play it. 200 years from now, they're going to say, I don't know who that guy was, but here we are 200. He's right. It was a win for the ages. I felt figuratively that night, sitting in my rented house in Westlake in Augusta, I felt figuratively that Pat Summerall was right here over my shoulder. I felt Jim McKay and, and Jack Whitaker and Dick Emberg and Chris Shankle and all these brilliant voices of my youth who all took a personal interest in my career. They were all alive at this time. And I knew they all would be watching. And I thought every one of them are going to be watching, wondering, let's see how this kid handles this moment. We, we've invested our time in trying to help Jimmy along. We have our fingerprints on his career. Let's see how he handles this. I felt pressure, not just because the moment was so big, but more primarily because I knew my heroes were watching. So now the moment comes, he knocks it in, and I said, a win for the ages. And... That'll be the most important short sentence of my career. All right, if you want to listen to the full episode with Jim Nance, and I highly recommend it, that was episode number 76. All right, David, who you got next for us? I don't know if you remember this, Kula. You're probably not old enough, but I am. There used to be a great show on TV called Candid Camera. And the host of that- I remember Candid Camera. Okay, good. Good on you, <laughs> SAC in Australia. And the host of that show was Alan Funt. And his daughter is Juliet Funt. And she is the CEO of the Juliet Funt Group and a tough love advisor to Fortune 500 companies like Google, Costco, Nike, and Spotify. And Juliet brings up this incredible insight that we just get so caught up in the day-to-day -day and all the activity that makes us so busy that we don't find the time to do something that's really important if we really want to grow our business, and that's to pause and think. I'm about to turn on Flight of the Bumblebee, and I want you to describe for me the, the work environment most of us are living in these days. <laughs> All right, ready? Yeah. All right. You, if you're a typical worker, probably 
Wake up in the morning, hit the snooze button, you sleep for five more minutes, and you're up. You shower, you brush, get into the kitchen looking for breakfast, maybe scrambled eggs, maybe French toast. Ha ha, yeah, right. You get into the car, you got a power bar in one hand, a cell phone in the other, and you're driving with your knees. You get into the office, you start flag prioritizing your email. Red for emergency, yellow for time sensitive, and green for this can wait. You end up with 227 reds and a green. You go to a meeting and another meeting and another meeting and another meeting and another meeting, and finally a lunch conference call on which you have to spend the entire time listening to the typing and sandwich eating of the one person who doesn't hit mute. And I could go on, but we're on a podcast, so I'll probably stop there, but that's how work feels for people every day. It's amazing we're all still standing. <laughs> I agree, and, and that was great. You know, and, and you have the opportunity to consult with a lot of leaders as the CEO of Juliet Funt Group. Tell me about the work that you do and, and the problem you're really trying to help companies solve. Yeah, we all center around this critical metaphor of building a fire. And if I explain that to you, then everything else will fall into place. So I grew up in Manhattan. I never learned how to build a fire as a kid, but I learned along the way. And it seems that whatever ingredients you have, if you have good wood and you have a fire starter and pine cones, Nothing that you do will ever be complete if you forget one critical ingredient, and that is the space. It's the space in between the combustibles that lets a fire draw that spark into a burning blaze. And it turns out that people and talent and ideas are the same, that if they are oxygenated, then they can roar. And yet most people do what we just did, that satirical fast day, and they walk in and their spark is immediately extinguished by emails, meetings, decks, paperwork. So we go in with a twofold goal. One is to create space and the other is to eliminate waste because we have to decrapify the workday so that people can have that oxygenating space. How in the world does anybody talk that fast? I mean, that is incredible. She's amazing, but she's an even better leader. And if you want to listen to the entire episode, go to episode 85. David, imagine the impact those simple shifts in mindset can have on a company culture. I mean, imagine what would happen if everybody on a team took time to pause and think. It would transform the way that work gets done and it would really shift the culture. And speaking of company culture, I can't think of a better guest to learn more about that piece of leading a business than your conversation with Larry Sen. He's the father of corporate culture and the chairman of Sen Delaney. People really value numbers and they value models and they find pleasure in the more objective things. And I actually found myself, I went to the testing bureau at UCLA in my junior year. And I said, hey, I don't feel right. And they did all these tests. And they said, we don't know what you're doing in engineering school. You should be a salesman or a minister. <laughs> <laughs> so I did go on to get my MBA, but I used my engineering skills, teamed up with a kid named Jim Delaney, another engineering student and a professor, and started the original San Delaney, which is a retail consulting firm. And what I quickly discovered even there, we were trying to improve processes like supply chain. And I found that it was easier to decide on change than to get people to change. And most organizations were like dysfunctional families. They had turf issues and trust issues and people that didn't feel appreciated and valued and recognized. And I got my epiphany. We were hired by a guy named Sam at a place called Walmart to design the original supply chain when he had this vision of bringing low-cost goods to rural America. And he was an evangelist in terms of this 
purpose he had. And it was so easy to work there. The spirit was so high, kind of like you created, David, in the organization I work with you on. Just that positive, we can do it, can do attitude was there. At the same time, we were hired by Woolworth in New York to do the same thing. And I'd fly from Bentonville to New York. It'd be like going to the morgue, just a bunch of old guys sitting around a table. And their only purpose was to maintain the status quo. And I said to myself, you know, that little company in Bentonville is going to take over the world and this company is going to die. There's something they didn't teach me in school. And that began my journey to really understand this intangible part of organization that really makes a difference, what we now call today culture. And let me tell you something. Larry Sin probably had the greatest impact on my career because I had great ideas for culture, but I didn't have a way, a process to really drive it deep in the organization. And Larry gave me a lot of tools that we cascaded all around the world. So I, I think you're going to learn a lot if you jump back to episode 71 and listen to the entire conversation with my good friend, Larry Sin. Well, speaking of culture, I don't think there's any company that has done a better job creating and sustaining a great culture than the Home Depot. And this next clip is with one of my closest friends, Ken Langone, who is one of the co-founders of the Home Depot. Ken and I share in this belief that every person on the team matters. So I can't wait for you to hear this clip where Ken talks more about this idea. You know, Ken, you're a huge believer in spending time with the front line. Why do you think it's so important for a leader to get out there and press the flesh and, and be with the people who are really making it happen? For one reason, David, they're more important in the success of the company than I am. A person that works at a KFC or a Taco Bell, that's at the counter that gives the customer a good experience, that customer's going to come back. Good product, great service, great attitude. I don't want to sound like you're doing it for selfish reasons, but each person needs to know they matter. Home Depot today is 550,000 associates. Each person needs to know that they can make a difference. And more importantly, most of the time, they are the difference. And when you can tap in to a person's sense of self-worth, a person's desire to accomplish something, and you can say to them, I'm going to do it with you, you don't need to be any more than that. You turn them loose, and they're a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. You know, I, I remember, Ken, when I took my chief operating officers and we went with you to Home Depot and you got out of the car and, and we had about six to seven people with us and you picked up the trash when you saw it in the parking lot. You you pushed the shopping carts back in the store. You, you dropped everything. And this is what impressed me the most. When a special needs person came up to you and said, I, I just, Mr. Langone, I got to show you this display. You dropped us like we didn't even exist, but that guy was everything to you. How does that play into your leadership philosophy? David, we're all in this thing together. I may have a little bit more financial success than the next guy. I may have had a little bit more luck than the next guy. I may have been endowed with more energy than the next guy. But at the end of the day, we're all the same. We need to let everybody know they mattered. We need to step out of our own bodies for a moment and say, okay, I'm going into the body of that kid that's over there in the garden department or that kid that's over there in the paint department. And I'm going to try and, as much as I can, visualize what he's going through right this minute. And when you use empathy, when you use a sense of compassion and you let that person know that they really matter, they're precious to you. And more importantly, they're precious to what you're trying to accomplish. And you share that success with them. You let them go home feeling they've accomplished something that day too. You turn that person on that way, David, it's a force that can't be stopped. 
that whole episode with Ken is so entertaining and impactful. And if you want to hear the whole thing, it's episode 89 in the How Leaders Lead feed. Well, David, I got to admit, conflict is not my favorite thing in the world. I tend to run away from it. But this episode has been really helpful for me, the next one we're going to talk about, because it has really pushed me to think differently about conflict. The next clip is from your conversation with Ken Chenault, the former chairman and CEO of American Express. And he's the current chairman and managing director at General Catalyst, a dynamic private equity firm. I love how Ken talks about constructive confrontation. Conflict doesn't always have to be bad. It can be constructive. And I think you're going to love learning from Ken in this clip. One of the things that I talk to founders about very directly is eliciting and receiving direct feedback. And so this concept that I used in management of constructive confrontation, do it respectfully, but at the end of the day, what you want with your people and what you're going to get with me is I'm going to tell you how I feel, what my concerns are, what areas you need to develop. Let's talk about it, but then let's put a game plan together. Because one of the things that's important that I really stress to founders or anyone that I'm mentoring is we're all judged by our actions. And so take me through the outcomes, behaviors that you engage in. Let's understand what the impacts are. Let's understand what the results are, because we all got to be outcome driven. But again, if we want to do something that's really lasting and meaningful, it's got to be motivated by values and principles. Did you ever get some coaching from someone that surprised you and how did you handle it? Yeah. So David, you know, at the end of the day, there's nothing like feedback. All right. So in my mid thirties, and I, I thought I was a hard charging guy. I thought I was a good guy. I thought I treated people respectfully, but I was very driven from a performance standpoint. So we had this upward feedback and as you know, there's always 10 things you do well, five to 10 things you can improve. But the most glaring thing for me was the feedback was, Ken, you are not a good listener. I said, give me a break. I'm not a good listener. I, I mean, I'm, not, I'm nice to people. They said, no, here's what we feel. If you don't feel someone is saying something that is really impactful, you zone out. In fact, we have a term for it, the Ken zone. <laughs> and you just like ignore. And so you know, at the end of the day, David, what they were saying is you're disrespecting me and you only give us like two minutes. If we don't say something that really is on your agenda or you think is really bright, you're out. I was devastated, devastated because it was, there was no gray area. It was clear. So, you know, I go through my performance plan. I do this stuff, you know, after three months I go back. All right, let's see. I know there's going to be a big improvement. And one of the things was the harsh reality is, as you know, it is really hard to change perceptions. So it took around two years. And then literally five years later, I remember someone was saying, you know, Ken, one of the things that's really remarkable about you is you're a good listener. And I just <laughs> laughed. I said, let me tell you the story. Uh, and so what I really believe, David, is that all of us have areas that we need to work on. And, and one of the things that I saw was being an active listener was critical. I was actually losing out on ideas, even though I wasn't abrasive 
I was belittling people. I was saying, if you don't show me you're really bright and you've got a great idea in two minutes, I'm going to zone out. And so that was one of the most important interventions. And I realized how serious it was going to be to my success as a leader. Ken's track record at American Express and what he's now doing in his new company is just top notch. So go to episode 68 to hear that entire interview. Well, Kula, guess what? We've only got two left, and this is the one I'm going to talk about. And this next clip is with my friend, Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target. You're about to hear how, as a leader, Brian views himself as a coach. And you know what? Coach is such a great mindset to have. The era of the boss, I believe, is over. What we want in this world are coaches, not bosses. Take a listen to Brian's take on this subject. You know, when I was in school at UCLA, I kind of went back and forth about what did I want to do? For a long time, I thought I wanted to be a teacher and a coach. Uh, when I stopped playing football in college, I coached high school football and I coached baseball. And I love working with kids. I love being out on the field. And in some ways, I feel like I'm still a coach. You know, I get to develop talent and design the plays and work with the team and get somebody ready to come off the bench and jump in when we need them. And I want to be a lifelong coach. And I've always recognized you can have a great game plan, a beautiful strategy. It always looks good in a boardroom or on the sideline, but it's always the people that have to go out there and embrace it. I've always believed that for me, the best things have happened in businesses that I've been involved in when the pronouns change. And let me explain what that means. When I hear somebody say, David said, or Brian said, we need to do this. I usually just shake my head and say, you know, this is not going to work out well because they don't own it. They don't believe it. They're doing it because they think it's important to you or to me. But when I hear that pronoun flip and it's, here's what we're going to do. And here's what we believe in. And here's our strategy. And here's our plan. Magical things happen because people become accountable. They feel vested. They feel like they're owners and they're empowered. So I always look for that pronoun to flip. So you can hear the rest of this clip from Coach Cornell by going to episode 102. All right, David, it's really hard to pick a favorite episode from this year because all of them are incredible, but this one has got to be at least one of the most fun episodes of the year. It's with Peyton Manning, and I love this episode. You know, I'm really inspired when people can reinvent themselves and do it successfully. You know, Peyton obviously had this incredible career in the NFL, but now he's arguably one of the best business people to come out of sports. He started all these different companies and done them really well. And I just love hearing his stories about how he transitioned what he learned on the football field to running these businesses. And I'm really excited for you to hear what Peyton says about bringing out the best in his team members. So buckle up and listen to this clip with Peyton. I don't think I've ever seen a sports superstar become a business superstar as quickly as you have. Uh, you've been a restaurant franchisee. You're a celebrity endorser. You own a golf course. You've got your own whiskey. You've got Omaha Productions. And you've got the Payback Foundation, which is fantastic. I just want to start out by congratulating you on all this. And 
I have to ask you this question. With all you've accomplished on the business front already, do you even miss football at all? Well, I don't miss getting hit anymore. Uh, I'll say that. <laughs> it's not fun when you have 300-pounders coming after you and driving you into the ground and telling you they'll be back in a couple of minutes, you little punk. You know, there's some really friendly D linemen <laughs> out there. I don't miss that. Uh, what I do miss, David, about playing football is being a part of that team, right? Football, I will say, it is the ultimate team game. The bonding, the camaraderie, and the sacrifice with 53 guys, practices, plane rides. I miss the camaraderie of being on that team. But I found myself in this second chapter kind of being a part of a number of different teams. The Omaha team, right? The Sweetens Cove team may not be as big, may not be 100 people on a plane ride going to a Broncos or Colts game, but it's smaller little teams. And the same principles that I learned in football, I feel like I'm applying to this second chapter, right? Communication, teamwork, being unselfish, and asking questions. David, the one thing I think most of the coaches that coached me would tell you that I asked a lot of questions. And to me, I was the first to admit, if I don't know something, tell me what's happening here. I'm not sure what this defense is. If a quarterback doesn't ask questions, I think he's going to be in trouble. And I've asked more questions in this second chapter about all these different ventures because I'm not an expert. I don't know the answers. Let me be around somebody that knows more than me and pick their brain and try to get smarter in these ventures. Do you think having that kind of vulnerability and opening yourself up and letting people know that you, you don't have all the answers, do you, do you think that is one of the keys to you getting the best out of people? I certainly hope so, because I felt like it worked in football for me. I felt like I was the hardest on myself. You know, football is an interesting game, David. You film every game. You watch the film of the game the next day. You also film every practice. And you watch the film of that practice the next day. So every day you are being graded and evaluated. And if you make a mistake, you have to answer for it because the camera is watching. And I always felt like if I made a mistake, I was the first to go, hey, this is a horrible decision. It's greedy. It's undisciplined. Hey, wide receiver, you're wide open. I should have gotten you the ball. I felt like my teammates at least respected that, that I was hard on myself. I was trying to do better. And I think if you admit that you don't know everything and that you are going to make mistakes, I do think people will play harder for you. I felt like my receivers played hard for me because they knew I was doing everything I could to get ready. And so I've tried to take that same approach in this second chapter of asking questions, trying to understand, you know, trying to be a good listener. David, there's an old saying, you know, words have power. Well, I think silence does too. Being a good listener, going back to the football thing, I was always taking input from my teammates. Hey, Peyton, I can get open on this route, right? I can go a deep out and up on this guy all day. Boom, very next play, I'd audible to an out and up. And that receiver felt like he was empowered because I took his input and implemented it into the game plan. Same thing on these different business ventures, right? If you have a good idea, bring it up. Let's get it into the game plan. It's not all coming from me. Cool is right. This is a great conversation, a fun conversation with Peyton Manning. Go to episode 104 and listen to the entire conversation. You'll love it. All right, David, that was the last part of our best of 2022. But it feels like we can't even say that because there's so many incredible conversations in our podcast feed. So again, if you haven't listened to all of them, go back and have a listen because I know that it will empower you with insight and tools to really 
become a better leader. What an incredible year, David. Well, Cooley, it has been. And, and I think that it's been very joyful for us because we're able to really pursue our mission, which is to make the world a better place by developing better leaders. And I want to thank each and every one of you for spending time with us and, and listening to the conversations that we had in 2022. So happy new year, everybody. And be sure to tune in next week and listen to two of the founders of Dude Perfect. I'm talking about Tyler Tony and Kobe Cotton. And let me tell you something, these two guys know how to have fun and they built a business based on it. And you're gonna learn a lot about how even if you don't know everything about business, you just gotta get started and go and learn along the way. So thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be. Mm-hmm.